right, everybody. Welcome to the show. Uh, this week, we are going to do uh, 1982 uh, comedy Fast Times at Ridgemont High, directed by Amy Heckerling and notably written by Cameron Crowe. Uh, Peter, welcome. Welcome. Um, I don't know how you felt about this movie. This is a movie that really didn't impact me a lot when we were in high school, but as uh, an adult looking back on high school, I really, really like this movie, even though this high school uh, takes place on the opposite coast from our high school. Um, there's something about the sort of universality of the high school experience that this movie touches on that I really like sort of, sort of like the way eighth grade, uh, you know, just felt a lot like junior high, even though it was set in another place decades later, junior high is junior high and high school is high school. Yeah. This is like one of the real sort of classic zeitgeist, films and a little culty right in a way because it's sort of of the era maybe in the way that uh american graffiti is about a particular you know about high school kids in a particular time you know this this is similar but 30 25 years later right in terms of its setting although not in terms of its production right so actually, it's funny that you mention American Graffiti because Amy Heckerling specifically says that she modeled this movie on American Graffiti. Yeah, this was her first movie. Um, actually, this was the first movie for a lot of people in the cast, I think, and and her. Uh, and yeah. I think it was Cameron Crowe's, I think, too. I think I, this is this might be the, book. the right. He wrote the book, and then he wrote the screenplay. Um, By the book, I mean, he wrote a book called Fast Times at Ridgemont High that came out a little bit before the movie. And he, at the time, he was a journalist, like a magazine journalist. Um, I think he was, he Rolling Stone or something like that? No, he was, he was writing for Rolling Stone when he came up with the idea to sort of like hide in a high school as a high school student, even though he was in his twenties. Right. And he went back and, um, Right, he did that for some period of months, whatever it was. Um, I wonder if in reality he went back for like two days, you know? <laughs> like, he just kind of kept saying he was back for that long. I wonder. Yeah, Can you know, I don't know, how, I don't know how long he was actually... It was, it was Claremont High School that he hung out at. But I don't, and, and it's in California. I don't know how long he actually was there. I wonder, because it's sort of intimated when you read about things that he was there a long time. That he he really had, like attended was really undercover over a long period, but I don't really know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, all all that when you look it up, all it says is that he was at Claremont from the seventy eight to seventy nine high school year. That's all. That's all it says. But yeah, I don't know. You know, it's interesting. Um, the book Fast Times at Ridgemont High is out of print. Uh, and I actually looked into buying a copy and paperback copies, used paperback copies are selling for a hundred dollars on Amazon. Wow. So for reasons unclear, um, the book has never been re-released. It looks like it's just a first edition paperback and that's it. Huh. You'd think there'd be an interest in it. Uh, I mean, I guess there is an interest if it's selling for a hundred bucks. I mean, you could well, probably buy it from the guy on Canal Street next to the fake Rolexes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, 
But yeah, no, I was sort of eager to get my hands on a copy to sort of see the differences between the the book and the movie. But uh, the closest you can come is you can uh, download and read Cameron Crowe's screenplay, which is available free online as a PDF on a bunch of sites I saw. Um, I assume it's I assume it's supposed to be free. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, the the screenplay is different from the movie in some other ways as well. Um, but uh, anyway, well, do you want to give a, a brief summary and then we'll sort of dive in? Yeah, I mean, the movie is, it, it doesn't have a straight kind of storyline. It's a, it's a group, it's basically about a group of characters and it follows about a year maybe of their, about a school year of their life in high school in Southern Cal. And uh, there are several characters, but um I guess maybe who's the main character? Jennifer Jason Lee's character, Stacy. Maybe. Yeah, or, I mean, I think Stacey if there Abraham is a, if there is a main character, it's as close as we come to it. It's Stacy, right? So you know, Stacy's uh, Stacy's fifteen, and her brother is a senior who's seventeen, and he has a car. And there, there, there are too many stories kind of to follow, but it's basically about all the things in high school that. Everybody remembers high school about sex, um, social packing order, um, more sex, uh, crappy jobs. What else? A little bit about cars, a little bit about what else? Um, guys who are slimy. Yeah, and, and sort of like sneaking out on your parents and sort of like like all these sort of big first experiences that you have. Right in high school, you know, like, like your first sort of taste of adult freedom. Right. And it's about sort of maybe semi archetypal college, um, person, I mean, sorry, high school personalities like Jeff Spicoli, the stoner, um, right. Or or Linda, the sex pot. Right. Um, you know, it, it, it sort of reminds me in some ways of, the way that there's, with the exception of Mr. Hand, the movie is devoid of adults. You yes. know, it's sort of like the, it's like a slightly more grown up version of Mrs. Othmar in the, in the Peanuts comic. Like, like the adults just aren't there. Like the kids are completely in their own world. Right. You see a couple, they show up like at the fast food places as, as, as the, uh, as the managers. That's about it. Um, or the nemesis, you know, like the, the angry customer. <laughs> right, right. In the same scene, the manager and the nemesis. Um, but you know, there's really not much of a plot. I mean, the movie just sort of follows them as they sort of wend their way through their senior year. Right. It's just a it, things happen to the characters, but there is no central story, and there's no real plot per se. There are just a bunch of small, sort of subplots, but it. It's just uh, following the characters, but it, it it's not. It feels paced well, um, and some of the you know the probably the the two best things about the movie are first the kind of flavor it gives. It, it manages to come together as um, as a picture that really gives you kind of a the feeling of what things are like, the way they look, the way people act what they're interested in, what the music was like, what the uh, things, you know, really it, it's a picture of that time. And this like, for, and also don't forget the centrality of the mall. 
And the mall, right? Which you that know, mall which, which is now abandoned, by the way. Right, well, and as are most malls. I mean, like, right. I mean, uh, my kids are teenagers and they, they, you know, they're not interested in the mall. You know what I'm saying? It's just, yeah. it's, what, what, what we used to do with the mall, they do on Instagram. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, um, and the second thing I think was that there were, it had some great acting in it and it, it was a bunch of young actors that were starting out probably. Sean Penn maybe being chief among them. This was his first movie and he made a big splash playing this stoner uh, really well. And um, Jennifer yeah, he Jason had been, Lee, I think he had, he had been in Taps before this. Was he? I mean, this was his first really meaty role. Yeah. Though. He's actually wearing a wig in this. That's actually a wig <laughs> because his hair was cut so short for Taps. Wow, looks great. Um, yeah, no, no, it is. Uh, he's definitely not just a, a you know a, a president of the hair club. He's also a client. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I was surprised to discover that that's actually a wig. Um, hey, and, I, bud, I, and this is this party. is really Jennifer Jason Lee's big intro too. Yep, those two more than the others, but there there are a lot, and a couple of them were never really heard from again. But the rest of them um, were. And, yeah, uh, I mean, there's three best actor winners in this movie. Yeah, um, Sean Penn won twice. Nicholas yeah. Cage and Forrest Whitaker all won best actor. Uh, oh, Jennifer Jason Lee never did, huh? Interesting. Well, yeah, she, Forrest, I know, she, she she didn't win best actor. I'll give you that. <laughs> did <laughs> she Forrest, ever win? Did she know. ever win an Academy Award? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know, but yeah, Forrest Whitaker has a relatively small part. And so does, yeah, he and, does have a small part, but I mean, so does Nicolas Cage. He Eric's, has a non-part. Basically. Yeah, he's he's only sort of in the background, sort of high-fiving. He's one of, I think, Brad's buddies. Yeah, he works at um, the uh, hamburger stand. Um, But, you know, like in the background of this movie, you can see, you know, Anthony Edwards, right? Yep. Eric Stoltz, Eric Stoltz. Is, the, is the stoner buddy. Yep. Um, uh, it's interesting that... Uh, uh, Mike Damone's, uh the guy who played Mike Damone, Robert Romanas, I never really saw him in too much else. You know, he had a big part in this. You thought he would have done a little bit better. Yeah, and he then, notably um, uh, was not around after. Yeah, really. no, 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 no. And neither was uh, um, the guy who played Mark, who's in love with Jennifer Jason Lee's character. Brian Backer is the actor. Yeah, he wasn't around yeah, no, much. I didn't see him in too much else. Although I just have to just just to get it out there. Ray Walston, right? Yep. Not only my favorite Martian, but Boothby on Star Trek The Next Generation. Just got to like, <laughs> just got to make the Star Trek connection. You know, it's de rigueur for our podcast. Um, uh, what was I going to say? You know, it's funny. I, I saw Jennifer Jason Lee once give a, a lecture in New York City. It might have been yeah, at the Museum of it was with, Television. Yeah, we, we was was that you I went with? Yeah. And I, I thought... <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome that, that we saw that together and I forgot who I went with. <laughs> I know, I remember um, that. But I remember that, uh, you know, she talked then that she, one of her tricks, I mean, she's a method actress, and one of her tricks was that she wrote long biographies for her characters that she sort of worked off of, whether or not they overlapped or intersected with the script. Like, she was sort of working from an internal biography that she had created. I remember thinking that was pretty impressive. Yeah, she is. By the way, good lord, is she pretty in this? Oh my god! Yeah, she looks like she's twelve. Although I think she was like nineteen or something. In real yeah, life. she's playing a fifteen-year-old, but she looks like an actual. You know, this is like the opposite of Greece, right? Where where you know, Stalker <laughs> Channing playing Rizzo is entering menopause. You know, <laughs> while she's filming the movie, right. like they, you know, they actually look 
like high school students. Yeah, most of them do. Yeah, and and you know, Judge Reinhold, uh, when he made this, he actually, I think he actually was, you know, he was very very close to his teenage years, if not an actual teenager. But he, uh, let's see, he was born in fifty seven, so he was in his early twenties when he made this, and he does look a little bit older. Yeah, no, he was in his mid twenties, I guess, almost. Yeah, yeah. But, but he's he's he is great in this, you know. Yep. I guess one of the interesting trends of this movie is some of the characters' arc is up and some of the characters arc down, and like yeah. Brad's arc is is almost uniformly down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, poor Brad. And then and most of you know some of them have a rough. I mean, no one really has this has a a real rocket ship up to you know uh, great. Um, future or a great experience of this movie. I mean, there's nobody, there's no one that has a really easy ride. Well, except for, honestly, except for Spicoli. I mean, I think one of the sort of like themes of the movie is that Spicoli is like, he is sort of breezing through life and he kind of gets away with it. You know, like, right. you know, he passes Mr. Hand's class, he he wrecks uh, Jefferson's car and gets away yeah, with it, you true. know, and, and he's the only one in the crawl who has a really, really huge win. You know, I, I mean, I guess, I guess uh, Stacy and the rat, um, are dating at the end, but you know that's not the same as you know like the sort of ridiculousness they give Spicoli, where he saves uh, Brooke Shields from drowning and you know <laughs> blows his money on a concert. Um, and well, and he also has that denouement with Mister Hand at the end of the movie, where Mister Hand shows up to <laughs> sort of shows up to tutor him and at his house and reveals that in a way, you know, and Spicoli real is smart enough to realize that maybe he probably does this for somebody. This is not the first time he's done that. And he asks him, do you have a project every year? Right. Is there a kid like me in your class every year, Mr. Hand? (laughs) (laughs) He sounds and looks so perfect. I mean, his, his eyes are always bloodshot. (laughs) He, I mean, he was perfect. Yeah. And he's got this sort of stoner, like wool pullover on, and the, his um, laugh, I mean, everything. He is like, <laughs> there is nothing that seems like he's acting in this movie. I read, Not a I read an interview with Heckerling, and she said that they looked at a lot of people for Spicoli. And like they, before uh, Sean Penn even said one word, they were like, this is the guy. Like, <laughs> he's going to be the guy who's going to play Jeff Spicoli. <laughs> he has some great lines, you know, like, hey, bud, let's party. About the way, what's All the, I need are some <laughs> cool buzz and some tasty waves. Tasty waves, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny. Like, when I watch this, like, I mean, to me, like, the most interesting story is the Stacy, Linda, Mike, and the rat. Yeah, you know, like the four of them are to me the sort of the most interesting because the truth of the matter is the average. I can only speak for the men, but the average guy watching this movie was the rat in high school, right? Right. right? I mean, let's, let's be honest. By the way, especially the average guy podcasting about this movie, <laughs> right? I mean, but because he's he's you know he's the stereotype of the everyman. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Like everyone else is is a little bit more of like the you know the this superlative like you know they got a page in the yearbook as a senior superlative yeah um um it reminds me of um that Matt Groening comic um from way back when when he did School as Hell 
Yeah. Um, and he has one of the best comics in School as Hell, which is uh, available online on a medic- many, many sites, is The 50 Types of High School Students. Uh, have you ever seen that? <laughs> have, it's an I, it amazing. So- it sounds familiar. Yeah, I think I have. I just don't It's amazing. It well. uh, like, I don't know. It's literally, it's the fast times of Ridgemont High of high school. And he has this thing called the, oh, sorry, it's the 81 types of high school students. I just <laughs> pulled it up. And I mean, like, you cannot find, I mean, it's amazing that this must have taken him a month to figure out. He has absolutely every last possible, you know, uh, permutation of what you were in high school in there. And it's, mm. it's absolutely genius. But, but, you know, watching this, most of us truthfully were the rat. He's, you know, it's funny because in the in the in the movie they call him Ratner, but in the in the script he's only referred to as the Rat. Right. Do you know who the by the way? Do you know who the Rat is in real life? No. The Rat is Andy Rathbone. Um, that's why he's called the Rat because uh, he was a kid at you know Claremont High School, and Andy Rathbone has written a zillion of the Dummies books. Uh, his dummies books are all like, I don't, he's written a ton of them, but they're all about computers. Hmm. Uh, but that's the guy that the rat is based on. Hmm. Um, but you know, like just to get back to the sort of, I guess the, the, the foursome, um, Stacy, Mike, Linda, and Mark, you know, they're like, I think they're the most complex story and they're also the darkest story, right? Because, right. you know, you, you have, yeah. And you have Mike betrays the rat to have sex with Stacy and then he abandons her on the day of her abortion. Yeah. And you know, that's the sort of dark core of the movie. Yes. Stacy trying to Stacy's naivete and sort of development is it's disturbing. Right. You and know? all of her all of her sexual encounters that she has in the movie are essentially disastrous right. right i mean from the from the stereo salesman guy taking her to a dugout yeah <laughs> right she loses her virginity in a dugout yeah right and, and then, then the he's supposed house. to be the older sophisticated boy right right he's the, right she she keeps thinking how sophisticated the guy is because he has a business card that says he works at the stereo shop you know <laughs> And, right. And and like just when you think it can't get any worse for her, you know, Damone and her, you know, their their encounter lasts about four seconds. Right. Right. And then Damone is hightailing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. He never talks to her again, basically. No, he's he's embarrassed and ashamed, essentially. Um, but it's an interesting way that they the storyline that intersects with the four of them is Brad, right? You know, Brad's sort of, you know, downward path through the, the fast food industry, um, you know, from all American burger to, uh, what's the name of the fish place he works at? (laughs) The pirate costume. (laughs) Right. He goes, right. He goes, then he ends up at mighty Mart, but you know, the bit where Brad realizes his sister is having an abortion is right. a great scene and it it's sort of like it's like the extreme limits of the world of the kid like like he he understands that his sister got knocked up he doesn't push her too hard on who did it and he agrees not to tell right. their parents like that's like that that whole scene is about 30 seconds 
And their whole relationship is actually shown to be quite good in that just that little bit. Yeah, they're really close. And you, you get the sense also they they probably just got a lot closer too. Um because exactly what you said, that was a it's it's a very caring and mature take uh understanding that he has. Right, right. And and it it's you know, it's maybe and I think maybe the implication is that Brad at the beginning of the movie, who's the hero of all American burger, making fries to his own personal specifications, was maybe more of a dick. And right. Brad, who's been kicked in the teeth a couple times, understands, you know, what it means to, for life to not be going your way. And maybe he's a little he's grown a little bit his senior year, you know, despite his best efforts not to. Right. I think Brad at the beginning is happy about all the wrong stuff and his, he's only interested in in true superficialities and at the end of the year maybe he realizes he has a little bit of insight you know at the beginning he just he's just trying to dump his girlfriend he's high-fiving everybody driving around in his in that ancient <laughs> right Buick. the cruising vessel Right, cruising vessel, <laughs> and he—he's—you know—he really—he's he's a schmuck, you know. He's a happy-go-lucky schmuck. Right. Well, but, ignorance is bliss. Right, and then then at the end, that's sort of a, his high point is that he's supportive of her, and he—he's grown up. And, yeah, uh, no, and, and that's his high point in terms of like development. I guess his other right. high point is stopping the robbery. <laughs> right. Way to go, Hamilton! <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I love the robbery scene. Like, because the robbery yeah. scene is when Brad sort of snaps. You know, yeah. like the guy is yelling at him, and like his whole year has just been one terrible experience. He's like, "Get off my back, motherfucker!" <laughs> yeah, yeah, he he absolutely he completely loses it, right, with a gun in his face, <laughs> right. Which also, it's also um, uh, sort of a. Even though it's it's he's out of control, it's sort of a mature moment, too, um, because it, it's kind of I guess he's right to lose it in that sense because you, I mean you can sort of understand it as a you can understand his viewpoint and it's not purely there's it, it has some merit to it it's not totally superficial like he really no 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 he's right <laughs> yeah he's he's totally right. What was I going to say? I think I think we should talk just a few minutes about the soundtrack. I mean, this is, you know, this is 82, sort of at the dawn of the dawn of MTV. And in some ways, you know, it's kind of a, a very, very long music video. I mean, the opening scene, right? Yeah. I mean, the opening scene is essentially a music video. As the credits play, you're wandering through the mall right. with them. And it sets the tone for the entire movie. And and a lot of the sequences in the movie feel like either part or all of music videos. Right. And there are a whole bunch of uh, big sort of hit uh, singles in it too. I mean, they really got um, it's, we got the beat in the beginning. Yeah. The Go-Go's. Yeah. And I still love the Go-Go's. I don't know. I, I mean, I just think they're terrific, but yeah, no, they're like that. They set the tone for the whole movie. Yeah. And there are a whole bunch of hit singles from the eighties that probably even people who weren't growing up in that era or growing up later, uh, probably know from later. Right. And sort of like, for example, Jackson Brown, somebody's baby or over the end credits, the end credits are essentially a music video, right? When it's, um, Oingo Boingo's goodbye, goodbye. 
And yeah. you sort of see like, you know, sort of a la, by the way, a la American Graffiti, you sort of see what happened to each of the characters after the movie ended. Right. Um, but, you know, I don't actually own this. This would be a great, uh, you know, album to have or a great soundtrack to buy. If, if you could actually buy an album anymore, I guess you just, you know, download it all to your phone. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, I don't know. Like, I think that this, this also is probably Amy Heckerling's, I think, high watermark from my point of view. You know, I mean, she's a lot of people remember her more for Clueless. Yeah. Uh, or maybe even look who's talking. But I think in terms of like her impact, I think this is definitely it. Yeah, she caught these actors on the upswing and she caught Travolta on the downswing. Speaking well, of. Well, you know, it, it's funny though because um, I actually like Travolta. I think Travolta's a good actor. No, he's a great um, actor. But. Uh, Especially in that um, L. Ron Hubbard thing. <laughs> but I think that for. I think a lot of people view the look who's talking as sort of like. You know, that's when people associate Travolta at his low point, you know? I mean, he went from, you know, an enormous star in the 70s to basically abandoned in the 80s, and he sort of, like, clawed his way back. And it's not really until Pulp Fiction that Travolta regains a measure of sort of mainstream respect. You know, he made his money from doing a lot of crap over the years, but he kind of became a respected actor again from Pulp Fiction, you know, really because of Tarantino's love of the 70s. He roared back with that one, and then he like sank under the waves again. Although I'm sure you know he made a ton of cash after that. Yeah, but he was in um, which is the movie where he plays Chili Palmer and the, and the oh, um, yeah. Elmore Leonard, the Elmore Leonard, had, uh, Get Shorty. Yeah, yeah he, had, he, had a, he had a lot of good roles, I think, after uh, after Pulp Fiction. Um, but you know, you got to hand it to Heckerling. Um, you know, she she cast this movie well, like. Like I, I, if you read online, you can see some of the people they chose or they looked at for the roles, and you know maybe some of them could have been okay, but they pretty much got it right. Um, if you're interested, by the way, there's a ton. They, you know, this is a short movie. This is it's like 90 minutes, including credits. Uh, there's a ton of deleted scenes. There's about 20 minutes that they filmed for this that they didn't put in there. Most of which is just sort of doesn't really change the plot. Right. Uh, or scenes you don't need. Like, for example, there's a long scene of uh, of Stacy getting her abortion. It's like, you know, there's a minute or two chopped out there. But all you really need to see is her walking in and her walking out. So they edited it very tight. Right. Um, so I don't know if we can do this podcast without talking about uh, Phoebe Cates in the pool. Um, you mean the scene that back when we had videotape, when you'd go to Blockbuster <laughs> and get the thing or from the library... It, the tape would be all chewed up at that scene. <laughs> right, right. And you would pause it and take a photograph of the screen with a with a camera. <laughs> if you if, if such a thing would have crossed your mind. Um you know, it's funny because that really in a lot of ways became like the iconic moment from this movie. Yeah. You know, in a movie full of great moments, like when people think of this movie, they think of Phoebe Cates in that pool scene. Like, it's such a great bit, the way it transitions from the fantasy to the reality. Right. Right. <laughs> right. She And she's supposed, you know, she's at her absolute most beautiful and glamorous, and then it transitions to her, she has water in her ear. <laughs> right. And then she walks in on him jerking off, you know, like the next, you know, uh, Brad in the bathroom. Right. And he transitions from his fantasy to reality really, really quick, right? He goes <laughs> yeah. from this sort of great sort of ecstatic moment to like utter humiliation and embarrassment. Yep. 
<laughs> What's funny about Phoebe Cates is she does not appear to age. Like she must have a, a photo or a painting of Phoebe Cates in her closet somewhere. Like if you look at Phoebe Cates today, she basically looks the same. Yeah, I mean she's half Asian. Maybe that's why. I don't know. I'm telling you, she looks amazing today. You know, it's funny because you know who she's married to. Yeah, Kevin Klein. Right, and he looks like he's seventy, <laughs> and well, she looks exactly the same. I think he's eighty, but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I don't know how old is Phoebe Cates now. We have to see how old Phoebe 55. Cates is. Phoebe Cates is fifty-five. Yeah, she looks amazing. Um, I love the way too that like you know she her character is totally deflated. You know, she's the sort of dispenser of wisdom to Stacy and other girls throughout the movie. Right. And then and then you find it at the end that, you know, she completely misinterpreted and misread everything in her own relationship and got everything wrong and got completely burned by her supposed fiance. And then they I, give her that great finish at the end where she's, you know, sleeping with her college professor. <laughs> I kind of got the sense that she made all that stuff up. You know, like I, I think she was lying about having a fiance. Oh, interesting. And she was know, I, dispensing, you know, she basically was totally inexperienced. Although she does she does sort of seem genuinely dysphoric when she gets the letter. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of got the feeling that I, I think she was making everything up. Mm, it's an interesting interpretation. This in the screenplay, it it, there, it there's no sense that she's making it up. And and the fact that she gets the letter you know, where he's basically dumping her is played straight in the screenplay. It would be interesting hmm. to, to get a copy of the book. I don't and know. See how they do if it. If you book. watch it in that light, it fits the whole. Cause she sometimes, you know, she, cause sometimes um, once um, uh, Stacy, when Stacy talk, starts talking about sexual experiences with her and asking her specific questions, she, you know, there's a, there's this couple instances she, like, she has no idea. Like Phoebe Case's character has, no, right. does, you know, gives these And she makes something answers. up with the sort of like appearance of wisdom. Right. And then I think Stacy kind of gets the figures out that she's full of crap. <laughs> I love the way that, by it. the way, that uh, Linda looks at both Mike and the rat with utter disdain. <laughs> yeah. That's <realistic laughs> like when they, also. when they barge into the pool, you know, like she wants to be anywhere else. <laughs> right. Because she's hot. Right, and she perceives herself as above them in the sort of social strata. Right, and she was. <laughs> and she would be today. <laughs> um, that's good. So, By the way, there's about 400 gifs of Phoebe Cates getting out of the pool, if you Google it. Not surprisingly. Um what was I going to say? You know, it's funny. Her career, you know, she was kind of she was kind of queen of the '80s. I mean, you know, after this, she's in Gremlins and Gremlins Two, and then she kind of peters out. She has a few movies in the '90s, and then, for all intents and purposes, she disappears. But I think she actually deliberately kind of left and just went to raise her kids. I mean, but that's, that's just... always a sign of maturity, you know. Like she had her moment in the sun, and she moved on. Yeah, I mean, you know? it's well, it's you know, she didn't have to decelerate and do, you know, and pull a Travolta, you know. I mean, she just she could leave more or less on top, and um, right, and well, and always remembered the way she was. Right, I mean, that's fair. I, you know, if you if you're <laughs> even better than Travolta is Nick Cage. Talk about somebody who was in this movie. I mean, 
Right. I mean, talk about downward spiral. And uh, well, uh, he, I guess Cage has been sort of up and down. You know, like I mean, he's done. You know, he won Academy Award for Best Actor for Leaving Las Vegas, but then he has also made an unbelievable amount of garbage in his career. What's well, that one where he's the flaming motorcycle skull ghost rider? Oh, God, it got worse from there. I mean, he's got a whole bunch of nameless, faceless, scriptless <laughs> movie, <laughs> uh, guileless movies that uh, later on that are probably, you know, neither of us have seen, but there, there's about a hundred of them. And I don't I, think he, he's... I mean, he puts out a movie or two every year. I think every month. But you know what's interesting is like it it shows you too like I guess you know it, it's it's one thing to be good it's another thing to be consistent. Do you know what I'm saying? Like like for example Nick Cage in, in Leaving Las Vegas is amazing and and for example my my favorite portrayal that he does is he's amazing in Moonstruck. Yeah, he's um, great in Moonstruck. But you know when you look through but when you look through you know his his filmography, you know it's 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 really really variable, and maybe I guess at some point though maybe you don't care and you're just acting to have fun and and you know make some money and you just keep the sort of the the engine going forward. I think he he did, was by the way he, he was the runner money. up to be Brad. Mm. So they he was going to be Brad, and they thought that he was just too dark, and they mm. I, they wanted audiences to like Brad more, and they thought that if he played Brad. Brad would be just a little bit too unlikable. Hmm. So you, you know, because if you don't like Brad, Brad's decline has a very different spin. Then you're sort of, ha, take that. Whereas the way Reinhold plays Brad, you know, like you feel bad for him and you want him to turn it around. Yeah, exactly. And Brad's whole, is, uh, you know, he's wholesome and uh, Judge Reinhold is wholesome looking. And, you know, he went from this, a couple of pictures later to Beverly Hills cop where he was the, the wholesome cop in the, in right. the you know, in the pair. But, I read uh, that um, Universal did not like the movie. So after they finished it, Universal thought that it was a dud um, and it had been made for not a lot of money. So they just they gave it a very limited release in the West Coast um, and they figured they would just dump it on videotape or cable and then it was a huge hit. Uh, and then they yeah, were unprepared for it. Yeah, they but they were unprepared for it, so they had to basically stop, make prints, get it out to the rest of the country. Like they, it wasn't planned. Huh. Interesting. And, yeah. and I, it was a hit. You know, it had a two stage um, success because it was a hit in the in the theaters. Then it was a big hit on video, also. Yeah, it was, yeah, I remember I remember watching it in high school and maybe maybe it was too close to the bone in high school. Like I mm-hmm. kind of found it turned me off in high school. But it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I sort of was able to watch it and maybe appreciate it and you know maybe not feel like I was looking at myself in the mirror so much. Um Brooke she, sorry, uh, Jody Foster and Diane Lane were both considered for Stacy. Hmm. But you know neither Jody Foster nor nor Diane Lane could have brought this sort of sense of vulnerability to it. I think that Jennifer Jason Lee does. Maybe Lane could have been a little closer, mm-hmm. but you know, the way that sort of Jennifer Jason Lee still has her baby fat in this movie makes her look very juvenile. Right. Um, Melanie Griffith and Tatum O'Neill were uh, possible Lindas. 
I bet, honestly, I don't know about Melanie Griffith, but I bet Tatum O'Neill could have done that. She probably yeah. could have pulled that off. I don't know. It was, it was, uh, it was very well cast. Yeah. It's a great movie. You know, um, it's hard to do a high school movie. You know, I, I, you know, my kids are in high school now and I watch shows with them sometime and like, it's very, very hard to do high school accurately. And it's, it's too easy to make Saved by the Bell. You know what I'm saying? For it to descend into farce. Mm-hmm. But like, there's only really a handful of movies that can really pull off high school. You know, we, we've, we should do a, uh, something someday on Freaks and Geeks. Did you ever watch Freaks and Geeks? Yeah, Freaks and Geeks is really good. I think Freaks and Geeks is the best representation of high school on television. Another like, cult show. Yeah. Oh, I love Freaks and Geeks. Well, it's Judd Apatow and his sort of gang. But, um, but if you watch Freaks and Geeks, which is set in the 70s or sort of late 70s, late maybe 70s. 1980. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, holy cow, did they nail it. And Freaks and Geeks has the sort of benefit of looking at high school through two lenses, right? The ninth graders and the 12th graders. Yep. Uh, and, and and through those two vantage points, you see the entire school. But it's hard to do a high school movie. And what other high school movies are really realistic? No, I think there, there are a lot more uh, pictures where they turn into a vampire movie or a horror movie or a spoof or – you know, uh, it, it's fit in, it's crammed into a Terminator movie or it's, you know, right. it's, it's not done as a standalone, um, sort of more honest picture the way this is. I mean, and, 16 candles comes to mind, right? Breakfast club. Right. What's right? I'm name? trying to think of John Hughes, John Hughes pictures, right? He, well, he made a career from sort of for, for doing that, but even his movies were not, they didn't have um they were polished in a way that this movie wasn't they didn't have a the same through you know end to end kind of realism and even their thing even the things in them that were uncomfortable were felt more um polished and movie like rather than raw I think that's fair I, you know two other movies that I'm I'm just sort of like scratching my head about this I think Juno um juno feels very real um and uh, i think you also you got this talk in richard link letters um uh what's it called again the one in texas days and confused right uh days and confused is i think as, as close to this movie as you get in terms of really really nailing it yeah and, it, and and Days and Confused is also sort of a pastiche that follows a large number of kids at all different levels of the school. Right. And I think, doesn't Days and Confused take place just over the course of one day? I don't remember, but it was in the 70s, I'm, I think, right? Yeah, no, but earlier. I'm pretty sure Days and Confused is just in 24 hours, but maybe I'm wrong. Hmm. Um, but uh, oh, Juno's good, though. Hmm. You know who's in Juno is uh, the woman who played Judge Anderson in Dread. Olivia Thurlby, she mm-hmm. plays Juno's best friend in that. Uh, makes me think of our podcast on Dread. Um, but man, hard to do high school, you know? It's just, you know, very quickly you end up with The Sweet Life of Zach and Cody or, um, you know, like I said, Saved by the Bell or, you know, 21 Jump Street and garbage like that. <laughs> Next podcast. <laughs> 21 Jump Street. Saved by the Bell. Add 21 Jump Street. <laughs> you know what the dirty secret of Saved by the Bell was? What everyone watched it, you know, like it was so awful. Like it was just, it was like a real bottom feeder. 
but everyone watched it and nobody admitted that they watched it. <laughs> you know, like there was just it. something about it you couldn't turn away from, you know, <laughs> like watching Screech and Zach. Good Lord. <laughs> By the way, like I'm so embarrassed that on our film podcast, I've uttered the name Screech and Zach now. I got to say, I never watched it. Sure you and, didn't. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm sure. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, any other thoughts on uh, Fast Times, Amy Heckerling? Nope. Anything? Nope. Oh, man. We should, you know, it's, it's funny. I guess the last thing I'll say is that um, is Heckerling has, I guess, been up and down, too. Like, if you look at... You know, her career, she's caught lightning in a bottle a couple times, and she's also had some, I guess, some prominent bombs. You know, she has this movie. She directs European Vacation, which is, I think, really funny. Right. It was um, a big hit. She, right. She has the Look Who's Talking movies, which make an absolute fortune. She has Clueless. And then she- She did sort some of, TV. Yeah, but then she sort of goes down, and she has like a night at the Roxbury, which she produced, or she directs Loser, uh, the um, the one with Mina Suvari and uh, Jason Big, which is just a terrible film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it just she 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 directed I Could Never Be Your Woman, which I think never even got released to theaters. You know, she just sort of sort of dipped down a little bit. But you know, it's like we always come back to Kubrick because of the consistency thing. Like it's one thing to be great; it's another thing to be consistent. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you can't, it's hard to compare anyone. There are very few people you can even mention. No, no, I'm not comparing her to Kubrick. I'm just using Kubrick as an example of like the consistency, you know? Right. Hard to do. Very, very hard to do. It's, it's hard. And I I think there's a certain element of luck involved in that also. Um, I, I think there are plenty of really talented, skilled people who just don't have the opportunity to make good movies over a long time. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Should we wrap it there? Yep. See All righty. Uh, so next week, say by the bell. Um, <laughs> I think we're going to do a Nicolas Cage retrospective of 40 <laughs> movies. <laughs> Starting with Ghost Rider 4. <laughs> right. Because he's made 40 movies in the last two years. <laughs> right, exactly. So we're only, gonna, we're only going back to uh, you know, 2015. All right. Should we break? Yep, see you next time.